Alright, last week we finished our survey of Hebrews 11 that we've been examining for many months. Uh, as we close out our teachings on the subject of faith over the next couple of weeks, we're going to move into chapter 12 of Hebrews for a week or so. And we kind of have to do it because we must do so because the first word in chapter 12 is therefore, or because of everything I just wrote, therefore. So we have to continue a bit further to see the conclusion of the teaching. As many Bible students say, whenever you see a therefore, stop and see what it's there for. And so that's what we are going to do. You know by now that biblical faith is not some mystical feeling of hopefulness. You just believe, 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 and everything will eventually turn out okay. Faith is confidence in God, believing all that God has said, and accepting what God says even when we can't understand it all. Faith is conviction to do what God says to do, and faith brings confirmation. That is the assurance that we are on the right track, first through the scripture and eventually through our circumstances. Biblical faith is not abstract and mystical. It is concrete, solid assurance because its foundation is the Word of God. Now this letter to the Hebrews, as you may remember, uh, was written about 30 or 35 years after the resurrection of Christ. Beginning on the day of Pentecost and continuing for many years, the New Testament church was predominantly Jewish. And on the day of Pentecost, as a result of the Apostle Peter's sermon, 3,000 Hebrew men professed faith in Christ. Most of them eventually went back to their, to their various homes. There in Acts chapter 2 are at least 15 different regions that are mentioned. And the New Testament church spread and grew throughout the Roman Empire in those early years. And then a few years after Pentecost, the gospel spread to the Samaritans, and then a few years later to the Gentiles. And then under the ministry of the Apostle Paul, hundreds, if not thousands, of Gentiles came to true faith in Christ throughout the Roman Empire. That's kind of the story of the book of Acts. But the history of the time tells us that, that the Roman government under Julius Caesar, about 45 B.C. before Christ, had, they had granted Jews a certain liberty to practice their faith without government interference. You might call it a, a limited sovereignty. They could practice the law of Moses and they could enforce it to a certain extent, but they could not execute anyone. And, of course, we see that dynamic working out in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus with Pilate, the Roman governor, having the final word and Roman soldiers carrying out the execution. This limited sovereignty was kind of continued by Caesar Augustus, who was Caesar at the time of Jesus' birth. And throughout Jesus' earthly ministry and throughout the early years of the church, Judaism was practiced with very limited government in interference. The early church, when they were persecuted, they were initially persecuted by, by Jewish authorities. But the Romans viewed Christians as being a branch of Judaism for many, many years, so they tended to leave them alone. But right around the time of the writing of this letter to the Hebrews, the persecution from Rome was beginning to escalate. 
And they were beginning to figure out that this new Christianity, these new Christ followers, were not really a part of Judaism. They were something new, and they viewed them as a threat to Rome. And, and, they were, and they were at this point now many Jewish people who were tempted to go back to Judaism in order to avoid the persecution. And that's what, I believe, brought to pass the writing of this, of this letter. That's, that's the underlying theme of this letter to the Hebrews. Don't go back. You can't go back. The old covenant under Moses is over. Jesus is far better. Remember verse 40 in chapter 11, where he said, God has provided something better for us. So, so the, the, the whole point of this letter to the Hebrews is that Jesus Christ is better than everything in the Old Testament. And 15 times in this letter to the Hebrews, we see the word better. Through Christ, we have a better hope. We have a better covenant. We have better promises. We have a better sacrifice. We have better eternal possessions. We have a better country awaiting us. We have a better resurrection. The Old Testament sacrifices temporarily covered sin, but they did not take them away. And the writer to Hebrews keeps hammering away at this thought, Jesus Christ is better than everything. If you go back, he says, you are trampling the blood of Christ, he said earlier in this, in this book. He said, you are rejecting what Christ did on the cross for you. You are hardening your heart against the truth. You are throwing away Christ's once for all final sacrifice for sins. He says, don't go back, don't go back, don't go back. So all of our illustrations of faith from Hebrews 11 that we've been looking at these many months were all designed to to challenge those professing believers to, to prove up on their confession of faith in Christ. Don't turn back, he told them, all the way from Abel in Genesis 4, right up to the coming of Christ, people were saved by faith, trusting the promises of God to send the Redeemer, obeying the Lord, patiently waiting for the Redeemer to come. And as the Apostle John wrote many years later in 1 John chapter 5, this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Real faith, we said a couple weeks ago, is not affected by our circumstances. Last week we said real faith stands the test of suffering and trials and hardship. Therefore, because of that, let's look today at chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. You say, wait a minute, who are the witnesses? Well, it's all the folks in chapter 11. He says, we are surrounded by this great cloud of, of, of witnesses. So, he says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He says, Look, looking unto Jesus, laying aside all these weights, we've got this great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, so let's get with it. And there are, there are three direct commands in this text. If you're into English grammar, they're called imperatives. I mean, get out there and do it. You have to do it. It's an imperative. It, it's a necessary and mandatory action. And, and there's at least three of them in these, this first verse. Here, the first one, he says, let us... That is, united action. 
There's a united action, let us, because this command is aimed at a group of believers. They weren't supposed to be out there going for it all on their own. There's this group of believers, that these Jewish people who were tempted to go back to Judaism to avoid the persecution of Rome. And he says, no, let us, let's join together and let us do this. Then there's a definite action. There's a united action, then there's a definite action. Lay aside every weight and run the race. And then there's a focused action. He says, looking unto Jesus. And all three of those imperatives are imperative. They are necessary and mandatory if we are going to finish the race for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, if we are going to do this, then he said, let's lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance. Way back in 1845, there were two boatloads of British sailors, about 130 of them, who set sail from England, determined to find the famous but elusive Northwest Passage. That was the the way by ocean, from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean by sailing through the Arctic Ocean over the top of Canada. The ancient Greeks had spoken of it. People had dreamed of finding it. Nobody had ever actually sailed it before. They had had explored certain pieces, certain ends of it, but they'd never found exactly how to get through. There is a way, and people do it now, uh, but, uh, but at that time they didn't know. And so in 1845, these two boatloads of British sailors, uh, they set out from England, and they were, they were going to find the Northwest Passage. They took massive amounts of canned food, enough for a couple of years. They outfitted the ships with steel hulls to break through ice. Uh, they, these were steam ships, but they had, or these were sailing ships rather, but they had auxiliary steam engines uh, for extra power to supplement the wind power in the sails. But, but amazingly, uh, amidst all the things that they, that they prepared for, they only took a 12-day supply of coal for those auxiliary steam engines. They also loaded their sailing ships with a lot of stuff they didn't need, a 1,200-volume library, fine china, crystal goblets, sterling silverware for each of the 14 officers with his initials carved on the handles, didn't quite sound like an Arctic expedition to me. But despite the steel hulls and the steam engines, the ships became trapped in these frozen plains of ice. After several months, Lord Franklin, the leader of the expedition, died. The men had decided to trek to safety in small groups, as nearly as they can figure out. None of them survived. After not hearing for them for three years, the British sent out some search parties. There were a few bodies that were found, but most of them were never seen again. In fact, they didn't even find the ships until 2014 and 2016, all the way from 1845. One part of the story is, is very heartbreaking and, and, and very interesting. They found the bodies of two officers, one of the search parties did, They had pulled a very large sled more than 65 miles. They had made it 65 miles through the Arctic. But when rescuers found their bodies and they they uncovered the sled, the sled was filled with their sterling silverware. And I'm thinking, what in the world were they thinking? Those men contributed to their own demise 
by carrying what they did not need. Trying to save their lives in the Arctic, but dragging a sled full of engraved silverware. And I thought, but don't we sometimes do the same thing? Don't we drag baggage through life that does absolutely nothing for us spiritually? Evil thoughts that destroy our perspective. Addictive habits that drag us down. Grudges that we won't let go of. And notice when in, in, in our verse here, he said, Lay aside every, every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. You see, we've got, we've got weights and we've got sin. We are certainly supposed to lay aside sinful activities and sinful thoughts and sinful attitudes and sinful behaviors. But there are also some things that we need to lay aside that, that may not necessarily be sinful, but, but it's, it's a weight. It, it's just holding us back from, from doing what God wants us to do and being what God wants us to be. Maybe we watch too much television. Maybe we spend too much time surfing the internet. Maybe we're staring at our phones too much. Maybe we just lollygag around and don't get anything done. Maybe we stay up too late fooling around wasting time. Maybe we do things that, that are not inherently sinful, but they are distractions and hindrances to doing the will of God. We had a young lady, a friend, I mean, we still do, we know her, she's a friend of one of our daughters, and she was really into rodeo and barrel racing. She did a lot of barrel racing in, in her younger years, and, uh, and, she, and, then, and then all of a sudden she just quit, and, and, uh, and our daughter asked her, why, why did you stop barrel racing? She said, it was too big a distraction to following the Lord. She said, I would go for months on end and never darken the door of a church because every single Saturday and Sunday I had to go barrel race. Week after week after week, month after month after month after month. And I finally said to myself, what am I doing? Is this really worth my spiritual life? Is it a sin? No, it was a weight. It just kept dragging her down. I heard a pastor preaching once about, about his, his, his golf game. He loved to golf. He said, he said, I had to quit it for a year to kind of wean myself from it because I found myself every single day. I walked out the door, and, and, I, and he, was living, he didn't live in Montana, but he walked out the door, and he looked at me and said, wow, this would be a great day to golf. Man, I wonder if I could figure out how to get out of the office and get to the golf course for a while this afternoon. He said, it was, it was turning into an idol. I wasn't thinking about how I could minister. I was thinking about how I could get enough golf time away. Was he actually sinning? I don't know if I'd call it sinning, but it was, it was a weight. It, 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 was just, it was dragging him down. And, and the writer to Hebrews says, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. We obviously need to get rid of the sin out of our lives, but a lot of times we just, we just have some weights that are dragging us down. They, they, they are distractions, they are hindrances to doing the will of God, to, to growing spiritually, to being focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me share with you three thoughts today regarding the Lord Jesus Christ from this passage of Scripture and our relationship to Him. Number one is this, Jesus is our focus, should be. Jesus is our focus. When he says in verse 2, looking unto 
Jesus. That word looking comes from a, a Greek word that has the idea of concentrating your gaze. It means to look away from other things so you can focus all your attention on one subject. So we are looking unto Jesus. We are focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. Any track coach will tell his runners, when the gun sounds, start running as hard as you can. Don't look back. Don't look around. Keep your eye on the finish line and keep running. During my high school football years, I used to hear the coach tell the ball carriers, which I was not one of them. I was on the line. I, I played offensive and defensive tackle in my years back in the dark ages. But I used to hear the coach telling the ball carriers, don't look behind you to see how close the other guys are. Look ahead toward the goal line and run as hard as you can run. And see, in fixing our eyes on Jesus is, is, is a habit pattern of, of holiness. It, it requires continuous, sustained action. It's like a mariner in rough seas who's watching his compass to make sure he stays on course. Looking unto Jesus should be a habit of life, this daily life focus that helps to keep us on track. And our text gives us some really wonderful motivation when it says Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. The author means he's the originator. The finisher means he's the completer. He's the one who wrote the plan for our salvation. He's the one who worked the plan. He's the one who brought it to completion. If Jesus were an author, we would say he wrote the book and then he lived the book. If he were an architect, we would say he drafted the blueprint, then he built the building. If he were a, a pilot, we'd say he filed the flight plan, and then he flew to the destination. If he were a chef, we'd say he selected the menu, gathered the ingredients, and then he cooked the meal. And regarding our faith, he's the one who wrote the plan for our salvation. He's the one who worked the plan and brought it to completion. So Jesus Christ is our focus, and in Him we can find everything that we need all the time. Keep our focus on Him. Secondly, Jesus is our example. He says, Who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame. Interesting. Note two words there. Joy and cross. Those two words don't seem to go together. The cross speaks of pain and suffering and shame and ridicule and rejection and, 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 and public humiliation. Crucifixion meant a, a slow, agonizing death that often lasted for several days. There was nothing beautiful or humane about death on the cross. It was the worst kind of torture reserved for the very worst of criminals. So where is the joy in that kind of death? Well, the answer is there is no joy in death by crucifixion, but Jesus went to the cross and endured the pain and despised the shame so that we could obtain, or so that he could obtain the joy that would be his afterwards. So did Jesus enjoy the cross? Of course not. But he endured it for what would come later. Did Jesus enjoy the shame and the humiliation and the pain? No, of course. But it says he scorned it. He scoffed it. He despised the shame because of what was going to come after it. Jesus was living the joy of obedience to His Father's will and the joy of completing the work of redemption and the joy of bringing great glory to His Father and the joy of triumphing over death and hell. These joys were, were His 
but they came at the cost of the cross. So we see in this the, the principle that we often call delayed gratification. We see this principle at, at work in our lives on two different levels. The first level is that you, you give up something good to obtain something better. That's what we talked about, laying aside every weight. You know, you give up something that may be good, but you're giving it up in order to obtain something better. We know that we sometimes give up food to, in order to lose weight. I need to do that more. Students give up a night out in order to study for final exams. A young couple gives up dinner and a movie because they're saving to buy a new car. You see, there's sacrifice involved, but you know that in the end something's going to be better. So you give up something good in order to get something better. That's the first level of delayed <laughs> gratification. But a higher level even involves enduring pain in order to receive something better. That's why some of you high school athletes are lifting weights at 6 in the morning when your friends are still in bed. That's why you give up sleep in order to win the championship next year. That's why aspiring pianists practice for hours instead of watching TV or hanging out with their friends or playing video games. They put in the hours because there's something they're trying to achieve. And in a different way, that's maybe why cancer patients endure the rigors of chemotherapy and hopes that the cancer will be gone. Young people keep themselves pure because they want to enter marriage someday with joy and no regrets. And yet in another realm, that's why families in ministry often leave their loved ones and travel to the ends of the earth. They want the joy of seeing the nations come to Christ, and so they're willing to endure the pain of separation. See, there's pain in it for the sake of joy often in the cause of Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, follow me, and then he went to the cross. Are you and I willing to endure discomfort, pain, or difficulty in order to know the joy of fulfilling God's will for your life? And if you take that little phrase and put it in words Jesus might have said, it may look something like this. I want the joy of seeing my Father's house in heaven filled with his redeemed children. Therefore, I'm willing to suffer the pain and shame of the death on the cross. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross in despising the shame. You've heard the phrase, no pain, no gain. And Jesus said to his disciples, to Peter and John in the Gospels, no suffering, no glory. No cross, no crown. No tears, no joy. So keep your eye on the prize. We all like the joy of the empty tomb on Easter Sunday morning. But you've got to die before you can rise again. Jesus is our example. So we endure whatever God may lead us through because there, there is unbelievable joy waiting on the other side. And then thirdly, Jesus is our confidence. Last phrase of verse 2 says, He has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Jesus sat down because his work is finished. We mentioned this a little bit last week. In the Old Testament, the priests who were on duty could never sit down because their work of offering sacrifices for sin was never done. But Christ had offered himself as the final sacrifice for sin, and no other offering could be made, and no other offering would be accepted, which is why we always speak of the finished work of Christ. It means that the work of redemption is now complete. He sat down at God's right hand, the place of supreme honor in the, in the universe. There was no higher place or position for the Lord Jesus Christ in all of the universe. Therefore, to Him belongs all the praise and all the glory. He, we want to give Him first place in our lives because God has given Him the name that is above every name. And when we pray to Him, we are praying to the One who has been exalted to the highest place of honor, which means we have a friend in high places who can help us in time of need. You know, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6 has a very interesting thought when it says, By grace we've been saved, and it says we have been raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenlies. It doesn't say that we will one day be seated. It says we're seated with Christ right now. Because we're joined to Him by faith where Christ is now. There we are with Him. We share in the victory that He won through the cross, through His death and resurrection. And that truth, as wonderful as it is, is very hard for most of us to comprehend, especially when we feel like we're kind of slogging our way through the mud of daily reality. We don't really feel like we're seated in heavenly places. In our minds, we're in, a, we're in a, a battle every single day. But from God's point of view, the battle is over and the victory's already been won. And someday, when we see Christ, all that is His is going to become ours because we are joint heirs with the Lord Jesus. And our great confidence as we run this race is, is that one day, soon, we're going to cross the finish line. We're going to be seated with the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. Our work is going to be over. The victory will finally be realized for us. I've never read, I've never met Jack Wurtson. He's been with the Lord for many years. He was the founder of the famous Word of Life camps and ministries that are now all over the world. But people say that Jack Wurtson, when he would write letters to people, he would always sign on the victory side, Jack. That was kind of his hallmark, on the victory side. I've also read that they put those words on his tombstone in Scroon Lake, New York, on the victory side. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you and I are on the victory side. You may feel like you're getting trampled some weeks, but you are on the victory side. Jesus is our focus. Jesus is our example. Jesus is our confidence. So what do we need to do? Well, the only way to win the race is to keep your eyes on Jesus. Run the race with endurance, Hebrews 12.1 says. To run that race that's set before us. Everything that we need to help us along the way, we have it in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the testimony of the saints who've gone before us. We have the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the promise of coming glory when we finish our earthly race. So keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't be turned aside or distracted by the things of the world. Keep running. Don't look back. Fix your eyes on Jesus and run with all your might for the finish line. And when difficult times come, don't start with your focusing on your circumstances and then try to find Jesus in the middle of it. Start with Jesus 
and then go back to your circumstances. You say, that sounds a little mystical, Larry. Let me explain what I mean to you. Hard times often trip us up because we can't understand why God would allow certain things to happen to us. But you will never find the Lord Jesus and His will by, by rummaging around in your circumstances. If you start with your problems, it will be nearly impossible to find the Lord in the middle of it all. So you start with Jesus, you go back to the Bible, you review what you know about God, His mercy, His grace, His kindness, His power, His wisdom, and once you've laid that foundation from the Word of God, then you can find your way back to the circumstances. Doesn't mean you'll understand everything that happens to you, but it does mean it'll deepen your walk with the Lord. So always, when you're looking at your problems, start with Jesus and then the problems. And when you feel like giving up, remember that in God's eyes, you've already won. Right now, in God's eyes, we are seated with Christ in heaven, if we know Him as our Savior. In God's eyes, the outcome has already been determined. Even though the battle may seem stacked against you, if you know Jesus, His victory is yours, and one day you're going to openly share in His triumph. Remember, as one, as one person said, remember who you are and remember whose you are. You're not only a child of God, you're a sinner saved by grace and you belong to the Lord. So if you let that truth of God give you strength when you feel like you just can't keep going, some time ago, I came across a little blog that included the words of someone named T.E. Marsh. I don't know who he is, uh, or she, I'm not sure, but, on, on the, but they were writing on the fullness that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a very good statement. Let me read it to you. In Christ, there is full acceptance. Therefore, do not doubt Him. In Christ, there is peace. Therefore, trust Him. In Christ, there is life. Therefore, abide in Him. In Christ there is blessing. Therefore, delight in Him. In Christ there is light. Therefore, follow Him. In Christ there is power. Therefore, wait on Him. In Christ there is truth. Therefore, learn from Him. In Christ there is grace. Therefore, receive from Him. In Christ there is joy. Therefore, rejoice in Him. In Christ there is unlimited provision, therefore depend on Him. In Christ there is strength, therefore lean on Him. You see, everything we need, we can find in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has all the hope, all the love, all the grace, all the power, all the strength, all the wisdom, all the patience, the guidance, the encouragement, all the joy, all the endurance, all the gentleness, all the forgiveness all the determination, all the submission, all the courage that you and I will ever need for any circumstance. Every virtue is in Him. Every good thing we need, He has. And what He has, He willingly gives to us. We just read a verse in Caroline the Psalms this week. No good thing will, will He withhold from those who walk uprightly. So don't drop out because of discouragement, fear, doubt, or despair, anger, bitterness. The Lord Jesus has already run the race. He's the author. He's the finisher of our faith. So fix your eyes on Jesus and everything will be well. Let's pray.
Lord, it's so easy for us to be distracted by all of the things in this world. We all have work to do and jobs to fulfill and things to take care of and business to handle. And it's very easy for us to lose our focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. But Lord, help us to lay aside the weight and help us to certainly lay aside the sin that drags us down. And I pray, Father, that you'd help us to keep our focus on you. You are our focus. You are our example. You are our confidence. All that we need to face any problem or issue of life, we can find everything in you if we just keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to do this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.